It's the AL Rookie Team of the Year, including the question, could Tristan Cassis hit 40 home runs next year for the Boston Red Sox? Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked on MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, award-winning baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're probably part of the Locked On Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. And today's episode is made possible by our friends at FanDuel. Make every moment more, because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 bucks. If your team wins, visit vando.com slash locked on to get started. So wrapping up the week and reminder, Monday is a mailbag. You have questions, send them to us. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. All the rest of the ways to reach out to us are in the episode description or in the show notes. But we're looking at the American League Rookie Team of the Year and going over the, like this one was surprisingly tough in a lot of ways. The infield has some obvious studs in here. Third baseman Josh Young right, for the Texas Rangers, would have been neck and neck with Gunnar Henderson, who's the shortstop, for Rookie of the Year, if not for the injury he had late. Yanye Diaz of the Astros is the catcher. Zach Gelliff of the Oakland A's is the second baseman. He finished number one on that team in war, surprisingly. But I want to talk about Tristan Cassis of the Boston Red Sox. The year he had on its face was a good year, right? So, 263, 367, 490, 24 home runs, 47 extra base hits, 70 walks to 126 strikeouts. But I think it could be even better next year. He was nominated for a silver slugger in 2023, and I think with good reason. And looking at Tristan Cassis and what he did last year, or technically this year, whatever, the season's over, so we're going with last year. A lot of there's a lot of red on that stat cast. Some defense was an issue. That's doesn't necessarily matter for the purposes of this conversation. We thought he'd be a good defensive first baseman. He struggled to add value running the bases. We knew he wasn't fast. He also struggled defensively. I think some of that's acclimation to the majors. I don't necessarily think he'll ever be amazing defensively. I don't think that matters. And worst case scenario, you move him to DH and Blaze Jordan can be your first baseman in the future. But from an offensive perspective. He was very good at not chasing, right? 22.1% chase rate, 86th percentile in all of Major League Baseball. Very good at not chasing. He had an above average strikeout rate, 25.1%. It was 29th percentile. Uh, But a lot of that came specifically, he struggled with sweepers. So he had a neutral or positive run value on just about every single type of pitch he saw, except for sweepers. And it was something where he batted .071 against sweepers with a 40% whiff rate and a 38% strikeout rate. Now, he didn't do great against sliders from the perspective of not striking out. Like, Tristan Cassis had a 43% whiff rate and a 37.9% strikeout rate on sliders. So, like, he didn't do well on sliders when he didn't connect. But when he did connect, 300 batting average, 600 slugging percentage on sliders. So, he did enough. 
he made enough contact, did enough damage to have not only a positive run value, one of his better run values, and then fastballs. He was a good fastball hitter, batted 273, changeups batted 282. Both those slugging percentages were over like 480 or whatever. It's a specifically, it's working on facing sweepers. And in a limited, very limited sample in 22, he was actually positive on sweepers. And with how we've already seen hitters starting to adjust to the sweeper, I feel like this is something that can be resolved for Tristan Cassis. One area that I think may hold him back from hitting 40 home runs is the fact that ballpark isn't necessarily conducive to his distribution of balls. He he tried to cut down on how often he went opposite field. Lefty hitter, obviously he's hitting. But when you go opposite field, you're getting to the monster. And 20-something percent opposite field, whereas his pull was only about 39. And middle about 39-40%. And most of his home runs, unless he got it down the line... Down the, down the left field line, most of his lines, his homers were to right field, either pull down that line or to dead right, because that ballpark has that weird cutout in center field, and then obviously the incredibly high monster and all of that stuff. The ballpark doesn't necessarily help, but Tristan Cassis had a very good offensive year. 18% barrel rate, 46% hard hit rate, was walked really well, 13.9% walk rate. Very good offensive year, and you can see where it's the swing and miss is mostly sliders and sweepers. The sliders, again, he's making enough contact to come out with a positive run value. The sweepers, he is not. But for the most part, very good year for Tristan Cassis. Like what he did, really feel good about his ability there to turn that into turn it into a 40 home run season if everything breaks well. I do want to address the Zach Gellif thing because a lot of people are going to say where Edward Julian should have been your second baseman and I put him at DH because I wanted to fit Gellif in here. He only got, it was a, it was a nice debut, 69 games in the majors, batted 267, 337, 504, 14 home runs, 35 extra base hits, 26 walks to 82 strikeouts. But the thing that I noticed uh, and Pitcher List wrote about this just recently, is he showed a very advanced skill of understanding exactly how hard he could swing. He was very good at not going max swing, right? At swinging enough to make quality contact, but not selling out for as much power as possible and taking the issues with it. I had a very good interview with him where they, he he talked about what they called exit velocity tightness. And we've seen launch angle tightness be a thing, but this was about the band, the range of your exit velocities. And he discussed specifically, yes, I could be getting 109, 110 exit velocities, but it's harder to control the barrel than when I'm getting 105s and things like that. So I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I don't necessarily know if the concept of exit velocity tightness can tell us that much. But I do think the concept of guys understanding this is the sweet spot for me where I'm balancing hitting for hitting with power and controlling the barrel really well. I think that's a useful converse, 
conversation. And I think Zach Gallup did a very good job of balancing that. And again, he finished the year with the most war on that Oakland A's team, despite only playing in 69 games. He was the starting second baseman for all of those. I think he only had three errors on the year. So I look for him to obviously be the starting second baseman next year. And then from there, I mean, it's very early, but if I'm having to project out, okay, you have to have an, an all-star representative from every team. That Gella feels like he may be a guy that could potentially do that. In just a minute, let's talk about the outfield. This was a little bit iffy. This was tough for me to find somebody that I liked, but we'll do that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. Now that the MLB season is officially wrapped and concluded, you can score early in the NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. It's $150, and all you have to do is pick a team that wins their game. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time to get in on the action now that baseball is done. You have a little bit of a ramp-up period here during football to learn about how base football's different betting works. The spreads, the player props, the over-unders, and things like that before you get to the college postseason and then the NFL postseason. So visit FanDuel.com slash on to kick off the NFL season and make every moment more with FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. Okay, so looking at the American League Rookie Team of the Year, like I mentioned, the outfield, this was where I really struggled. This is not a very, uh, I'm going to say, inspiring group here. And so what I ultimately went with, who I ultimately went with here, was Esturi Ruiz of the Oakland A's, Matsutaka Yoshida of the Boston Red Sox, and Matt Walner of the Minnesota Twins. And uh, Esturi Ruiz was ultimately negative war this year for Oakland because he struggled defensively. He played in 149 games. He was the primary starter in center field. He also played some left and right. I think he may have DH once or twice. I don't know why. But 248, 301, 339. Really struggled to hit the ball with any sort of impact. He had 32 extra base hits. Five of those were home runs. Most of it was uh, hustle doubles, things like that. Now, when he got on base, he was 68 of 83 on stolen bases. He created plenty of havoc that way, but he had to get on via hit because he only walked 21 times in 533 plate appearances. So, I do think there's a defensive learning curve that comes with playing center field at the major league level, especially in a ballpark like that, that has such big power alleys, that has such significant foul ground. Your positioning's a little bit weird in Oakland, I feel like, for your corner guys. And they had so many players rotating through and then honestly weren't that good that it feels like, yeah, you're gonna it's it you're gonna have a little bit of struggles. And I think he can get to average defense in center field, maybe a little bit better eventually with learning and understanding how it works. Sturry Ruiz, guy number one there for me. And then Matsutaka Yoshida, real quick, we talked about him the other day, 140 games, 289, 338, 445, uh, had 15 home runs. The thing that I do want to acknowledge and give him some credit for, and I didn't necessarily realize this, 
is he did get much better defensively at the end of the year. So he was, I want to say like he was pretty negative on outs above average for most of the year. In the month of September, I believe he was like neutral or maybe minus one. He was getting much better at the reads and the routes. And I do think that give him enough time in Boston, he'll learn playing left field in Boston. I don't think he'll ever be, he's never going to be winning a gold glove or anything, but I think Matsutake Yoshida is going to be good enough to play left field for you in Boston. And so uh, maybe you have a little more flexibility with the DH spot going forward than I thought when we did the Boston show the other day. Shout out, you know, the listener who sent me that, I can't remember who that was. Thank you for sending me that stat and that write-up about his defense getting better. But I want to talk about Matt Walner because I... Matt Walner had a really interesting year for the Minnesota Twins. 2019's first rounder out of Southern Mississippi. He's a big boy, 6'4", 220. And uh, this year, put up over two war, uh, got into 76 games, 249, 370, 507. 14 home runs, 26 extra base hits, 28 walks to 80 strikeouts two or three on stolen bases, then what Matt Walner did well is the quality of his contact, okay? His barrel rate, he did not have enough at-bats to be qualified on the leaderboards because typically that's like 3.1 per team game or whatever it was. So he didn't have enough to be qualified, but uh, his barrel rate would have been close to 100%. 18.8% barrel rate. 48% hard hit rate. Both of those were in the top, would have been in the top 10, 12 percentile of Major League Baseball. Average exit velocity of 92. Did a really good job at when he made contact. It was very high quality contact. He was able to get the ball in the air plenty. And just, this is just good, good power production from Matt Walner. But you may notice in there, when I talked a lot of that stuff, I said when he was able to make contact. And that's a big thing. 36.3% whiff percentage for Matt Walner, 31.5% strikeout rate. His chase rate was fine, 26.9%. It was him getting beat in the zone. It was him swinging and missing. You look at the pitches he did well against. He did really well against changeups. He did really well against sliders, sinkers, and curveballs. But he struggled with either pitches that are typically elevated, four-seamers did not do well, 37.4% swing and miss against four-seamers, and then he struggled with pitches that are going to have a lot of movement and typically take you out of the zone. Sweepers, splitters, cutters, struggled with a lot of the pitches that a lot of pitchers like to use as a chase pitch. And even so, the chase wasn't that bad. You can't get him to chase a ton, you could throw him something that was going to move away from his barrel in the zone and he would be likely to miss it. So a little bit of work to do there for Matt Walner. And then defensively, he didn't grade out very well. And I think he's capable of better defense than he showed. He did play a lot of left field this year, whereas typically in the minors coming up, whether it was St. Paul, it was Wichita, Cedar Rapids, wherever it was, he was playing a lot of right field because he has a very strong arm. Uh, I actually think he, I think he had just enough throws from the outfield to qualify on the leaderboards. And he was right up there with Nolan Jones for one of the strongest arms 
in Major League Baseball this year. I, I think his his exit his not exit below his throw velocity came out to something like ninety seven point eight miles an hour. Like he very strong arm, and so a lot of his issues defensively came down to range. And when you dig into Statcast and dig into some of that, that almost always came back to the jump, right? So it was the reaction and the burst. And to break that down, the reaction is how quickly you move in the prop, like, and do you move in the proper direction when the ball is hit? The burst is how quickly do you cover that initial. Uh, distance. And I, off the top of my head, I cannot remember what that initial distance is, but the reaction is how quickly do you move and do you move in the right direction? The burst is how quickly do you cover that initial distance? And the route is how efficient was your route versus the ideal perfect route. And his issues were very much related to the reaction and the burst. Some of me wonders, is that because he was playing a lot more left field than he's played in the past? I don't necessarily know, but if you look at his speed, he's got above average speed. Uh, He has all of the components to be at least an average defender. And so I think Matt Wander can be better going forward. I am really curious to see defensively what happens with this team because you've got to figure out center field. You've got Byron Buxton, obviously. If Byron Buxton can make it back into center field, I do think that makes things better for your outfield. But there's also questions because in the infield, you're looking to find a place to put Brooks Lee. And it makes sense he'd be at third base. Royce Lewis is there right now. If Buxton can't play center field, do you move Royce Lewis back to center field? He didn't like that. He got hurt when he was out there. Is Austin Martin healthy enough to kick out the center field? What do you do? How do you make room for Brooks Lee? And how does that impact the outfield defense once you've done that? Interesting conversation there. And I'm curious to see what goes into that over the offseason. I think their preference is Byron Buxton playing center field because he's a dynamic defender when he's healthy. But last year, he was not healthy enough to play center field hardly at all the entire season to the point where I think he may actually lose outfield eligibility and fantasy to start the year next year. In just a minute. There was a ton of very good pitchers in the American League, and I honestly struggled to narrow it down to this rotation. We'll talk about that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. Welcome back into Locked on MLB Prospects. Final segment here on the Friday show. Uh, Again, if you have questions for Monday's mailbag or show ideas for next week or for between now and the end of the year, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball, shows on Twitter at Locked On Farm. We've got a link tree in the episode description and in the show notes that has links to everything else. A Discord, subtext, email, all of that good stuff. You can leave them as YouTube comments. Tons of ways to get them to us. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you want to hear about because the big thing on this show, we give the people what they want. So talking about the pitchers eligible for this team, holy cow. There was so many incredibly good pitchers in the American League. You could probably build this entire, almost this entire team out of just Cleveland Guardians pitchers. Tanner Bibby, Gavin Williams, Logan Allen. Like they had some really good guys. Taj Bradley was somebody who statistically probably doesn't deserve to be on this team, but going forward absolutely would be. Grayson Rodriguez, a tale of two halves, but was phenomenal in the back half of the year. 
We'll get to that in a second. And then you even had multiple high-quality relief options. In your Cano was the guy I ultimately went with for the Baltimore Orioles. Pitched in 85 games for them. Picked up eight saves because he moved into that role later in the year. Uh, but Tyler Holton of the Detroit Tigers was like fourth among all rookie pitchers in war last year with 3.1 war pitched in 69 games with an ERA of under 2.2 just absolutely like 94 innings a dominant year for Tyler Holton with Detroit as a rookie so lots of pitching options you could have gone with here but talking about Tanner Bibby let's talk about how good Tanner Bibby actually was so uh, 10 and 4 record, 298 ERA in 25 starts. Struck, struck out 141 batters in 142 innings, so just below nine, nine strikeouts per nine. Walked 45, so 2.9 per nine, and then gave up 13 home runs, so 0.8 per nine. Uh, was the top was the number one, number two pitcher, technically in war among all rookies behind Cody Singa. We talked about that yesterday about how he's not. Uh, your typical rookie, because he's 30 years old, came over as a pro from Japan, et cetera, et cetera. But Tanner Bibby, very good. And when you look at what he was able to do, there's a couple things that kind of defy explanation where I'd like to hear from an expert to figure out like how this happened. Okay, so you look at what Tanner Bibby did last year. Graded out really well, fastball, breaking ball, off speed. All that stuff was good. Fastball averaged 95. Slider changeup curve was the repertoire that he threw almost the entire time. Interesting things when you're pulling up stat cast and you're looking at Tanner Bibby. His ground ball rate, well below average, 37.3%. It was 22nd percentile in all of baseball. When you dig into that, the MLB average was like 44%. Okay. He's allowing more fly balls, more line drives than the typical pitcher and getting significantly less ground balls than the average pitcher. Also, his hard hit rate is above average. 57th percentile, 38.1% hard hit rate, okay? Despite that, he only allowed a 6.1% barrel rate. 80th percentile as far as avoiding barrels. And so this is something where, if you remember, we've talked about this on this show and other shows in the past, barrel rate's a combination of a hard hit ball at an optimal angle for a home run. He's giving up hard hits. He's not getting ground balls like everybody else, but he's also not giving up barrels. And when you look at what he throws, these four pitches, these heat maps, he throws these pitches for strikes. The four-seam fastball, he threw it about half the time. That heat map is almost entirely in the zone or a little bit above the zone where you're elevating that four-seam fastball. That slider to a righty, he's throwing that down and in. Changeup is in the zone. Curveball is the only one that you really see a little more scatter shot. All of the red is, is in the zone, but there's a much bigger blue halo around it than everything else. He's throwing pitches in the zone, He's just doing a very good job of not letting you get solid contact on it. So it, it's surprising that he's attacking the zone that much and being successful and not really getting the punishment that you would typically see from a pitcher who came very hard into the zone. Remember Yuri Perez talked about that yesterday. 
He attacked the zone with his fastball, and it got absolutely rocked. But Tanner Bibby, just under half his pitches were fastballs, averaged 95 miles an hour. He gave up a grand total of five home runs on that fastball, slugging percentage of 348 on it, which, again, for a fastball, it's just very surprising. And some of that comes down to sequencing. Some of that comes down to location. Some of that comes down to just the movement profile of this pitch is a little bit unusual and guys are not used to it. So Tanner Bibby right now feels like he's probably a top 25 pitcher in the American League. And I'm curious to see where he goes forward from this. A guy that made the team that uh, tale of two halves is Grayson Rodriguez. At one point in time was the consensus number one pitching prospect in baseball. And when he first got promoted, he made his first start April 5th. He really struggled. Made 10 starts, uh, 7-3-5 ERA. Gave up 13 home runs in those 45 innings. 37 total earned runs. Just got absolutely blasted, okay? The slash line he allowed in those starts, 307, 374, 582. And a note here on getting destroyed early. He was getting destroyed by not great teams. Oakland put up five runs on Grayson Rodriguez. The White Sox put up four runs on Grayson Rodriguez. The Royals put up six runs. The Angels put up eight runs. He was getting blasted by not good teams. Some of his best starts were against quality opponents. His first start was two earned runs and five innings against the Rangers, who just won the World Series. He was getting beat by bad teams. So Baltimore sends him back to Norfolk. He spends all of June and part of July in Norfolk. When he comes back to the bigs, he comes back in mid-July. And from there through the end, Grayson Rodriguez made 13 starts. His record was 5-2. and two. I believe the team won seven of these. He did pretty well in these. 2-5-8 ERA. Gave up three home runs in that 76 and two-thirds innings. So he really turned a lot of this stuff around. 73 strikeouts. In those 76 innings, 21 walks. And when you look at what he did, it was the batted ball data was much better. When you're trying to figure out why, it comes down to pitch mix, right? So the, his stuff was better overall. And some of that was the spin rates were a little bit better. But for the most part, it's because he stopped throwing bad pitches and he threw more of his good pitches. And I don't just mean that like in the general, hey, just throw good pitches. His cutter was very bad in the major league sample. Uh, like, in, he threw it 12% of the time. It was a hard hit ball over half of the time. So he virtually got rid of it. He threw it less than 2% of the time when he came back up. It was like an every now and then I'm going to steal a strike on it. And he increased the usage of the slider and the changeup from 35% to about 43. And they were by far his best pitches. They're actually the only ones that finished with a positive run value. And so it sounds simple, but it's like you throw your worst pitch a lot less. You throw your two best pitches more. He got a little more confident about when to use the four-seam fastball as far as elevating it in the zone, which counts to throw it in. And so... After Grayson Rodriguez came back, he was a much better pitcher, and it gives a lot of certainty to the Orioles for next year as far as being able to get quality innings 
out of their rotation. Now, obviously, you're going to have to watch the workload. You're going to have to watch how many innings he throws. He threw 122 in the majors, but factor in the minor league innings. And this season ended up being a pretty decent workload for Grayson Rodriguez. He threw something like 165 innings this year combined between the minors and the majors. And so next year, you probably don't want to really bank on him throwing more than about 180 or so. And this is relevant because part of the issues down in the second half of the year for the Orioles were just about every single pitcher had already blown past their season innings limits in July. And that is why we on this show were pushing so incredibly hard for them to go out and get some more starting pitchers to lower the innings on some of these guys so that they weren't 50 innings over a max when they got to the postseason. And what did Baltimore do? Not what we recommended. And these pitchers faltered in the postseason. So did the offense. So either way, gives them some certainty going forward that they're going to have high quality starting pitching in the rotation. Fantastic week this week. Reminder, Monday's a mailbag, like we said. Tons of ways to get stuff to us. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Everything else is in the episode description. It's in the show notes. We want to hear from you. Enjoy this weekend. The Fall Stars Home Run Derby is on Saturday night. That's streamed on MLB.com. And the AFL All-Star Game is on Sunday night. If you need some baseball, it's on MLB Network at 8 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, remember, it's always a great time to pay a minor leaguer.